Hey ho, Tudor Minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 24 of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. It's a story project, so it does go in order. We've had such an amazing time researching this project and and working on it, and especially bringing it to all our thousands of listeners from all over the world. It's absolutely amazing. Oh, it's incredible, and we really enjoy sharing it with you. And sign up to be a member of our Facebook page. There's always a great debate going on and lots of fun articles. Absolutely. All our gratitude for taking this journey with us. In our last episode, we saw Sir Thomas Wyatt and Anne Boleyn cooling off with a swim in the Thames and then heating it up again. (laughs) But now we find Constance back at the Tower of London on orders of the Bishop Guzman de Silva. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 24, 1565, The Tower of London, in which Constance reads poetry in the tower and dances with a satyr. Secret errands must be run in the dark, Constance knew. Yet could not the moon be full at the very least? She had been summoned from Bedford House by Guzman's servant, Not the good-looking Spaniard, but one who had survived the pox and looked rather like a demon. Demon servant appeared in the midst of preparations for another of Princess Cecilia's Dionysian festivities. He approached her, told her he admired her knot of pelo negro, and requested a turn in the garden. Constance knew from the second he approached the real purpose of his errand. They embarked in a boat, and he became brisk, and thudded a package of substantial heft onto her lap, and dropped the burse on top. He was obnoxious. It would be a miracle if she could be stealthy while laden like a mule. She concocted pointed quips. She was honoured to save a soul, but not so honoured to carry weighty distractions to her charge. It had a little wit, yet wit made it more comfortable to say difficult things. Of course, she would never say anything. If asked to carry a barge on her back, she would not demur, even if the result was to be mashed beneath. Such was her way. Constance's reception by the Countess of Lennox's guard dogs was underwhelming. These items that she had risked life and limb for were pulled unceremoniously from her hands by Lady Knight. Without a word, Mistress Coulson took the burse and disappeared. Lady Knight weighed the parcel, bouncing it in her hands. She had something on her mind. Placing it on the table, she quickly unwrapped it. Constance watched as the older woman's face grew gentle. But what made her look so? Lady Knight followed Mistress Coulson into the Countess's lair, leaving the parcel half-wrapped on the table. Constance presumed she was to wait, though no one had thought to spare her a word of thanks or instruction. A dying torch lit what Constance made out as the writing of prisoners on one oozing wall. Water ran into the grooves carved into the stone and wept onto the floor. Leaning close, she searched for a name she might know. The writing was clear, considering its age, but the name Stoner was not to be found. The ladies' voices rose and fell. Constance hoped they were not arguing. She was ready to leave. What was in that parcel she brought? It was there on the table, loosely wrapped. Was it a holy book? Something that would comfort? She bent to take a look. Poetry? It was poetry, handwritten. How unforeseen. The remarkable sentiment of the choice filled Constance with fellow feeling for the Countess. She congratulated herself. She brought this worthy woman sustenance for the soul and nourishment for the intellect. The handwriting on the page was so elegant. She read, Anon the blood start in my face again, inflamed with heat, 
it had at my heart, and wrought therewith throughout, in every vein a quickened heat with pleasant smart. Heat? Inflamed? Such emotion, it must be Wyatt. Constance had misjudged the Countess. She would understand her, understand the value of a sacred relic. The Countess might help Constance. She was old. She had lived when the poet lived, when Sir Thomas More himself was alive. The Countess would know something. Wyatt's desk had yielded only disappointment. What are you doing? snapped the Countess out of nowhere. Constance fell into a curtsy. The lady did not take note. She was folding the cloth around the book. I beg your mercy. I meant no harm, Constance implored. My son should be a king. King, not some aside. He is king, good madam, Constance said, baffled at the direction of this anger. My Lord Darnley is married to the Queen of Scotland. What a wretched fool you are! A brainless reed without roots! He marries the Queen, but she keeps him like a little bitch, forbids him royal arms, robs him of his title, crowns him only with horns as she hangs and fawns on a black-hearted fiddler. The Countess advanced on Constance like an angel of death. You short-sighted dupe! I should whip some sense into you! And she raised her hand. The slap never landed. Mistress Coulson hauled Constance to her feet, shoved the burse at her, and barked, Away with you! Constance scrambled, catching her skirt on the door. She heaved it out and tumbled. Her back hit the stairs and her hand crushed beneath her. Fie! Fie! She rolled to the bottom, her elbow, her head, her neck. She moaned a little moan. She had worried about falling down these stairs. What good had it done? Worry had not kept her upright. She staggered to her feet. Her dress was so heavy it had cushioned her, and only her exposed arm was cut. She congratulated herself on her survival. She would get the Countess of Lennox's letter to her aunt. She would return to Bedford House. Barge, horse, or dragon, she would take whatever means Guzman's demon servant provided. And if none came, she would gate the city and hopefully reappear at Cecilia's Bacchanal without ruined shoes. Pushing her way through a dense forest of silk, velvet, and ermine, Constance paused, gratefully arrived from the tower, yet unsure where to take her place at this dinner honoring Queen Elizabeth. She was serving Cecilia here at Bedford House, but she hoped to some day return to court and did not wish to offend Elizabeth's retinue. The room was full of luxury. Cecilia had planned a great deal to show the English queen her Swedish best. She intended this feast to be one Elizabeth Regina did not forget. Constance and the other ladies had followed Cecilia about as she tasted food and jigged to various musicians, until the ladies applauded each and every decision. The night's festivities were to be a rollick for all, and Bedford House was ablaze with hundreds of candles, with English and Swedish ladies both in attendance. Constance judiciously stood between the two, afoot in each camp. Through an ornate cage of flapping birds embellishing the feasting table, Constance watched the queen, or at least her red hair, incline towards the golden curls of the princess. Christina, Gabriel's daughter, giggled. <laughs> Bring your lover here next time, Mistress Constance. <laughs> you are all a tumble. Lifting a curl into place and rubbing a finger across a blossoming bruise on Constance's wrist, a quizzical and then amused look followed. You are not so obvious, are you? Christina was so obsessed with love and lovers that she would never believe that Constance did not have some rough tryst, only a hard ride on horseback with a demon servant urging her on. She had been missed, yet no one would think to themselves, Oh, Constance Stoner must be ferrying the host of the Countess of Lennox. A lover. That was the kind of thing girls crept around for. 
That is my pay on those platters, Dordai said as a pair of jellies, one in the form of the Tudor rose and one in the Vasa sheaf, were carried to the high table and met with competitive exclamations. Elin von Snakenborg boasted, I will have such a treat at my wedding feast. More sweets arrived, rows of comfweets and a chessboard made of sugar, complete with two full sets of confection chessmen. The guests applauded. The sale of Elin's pearls must have fetched a weight of gold, and Cecilia was wagering the entire pot to bedazzle the court and stem the queen's ebbing favor. It seemed to be paying off as arm-in-arm arm, queen and princess made a leisurely exit from the great hall to take their place at the next entertainment, a play. Courtiers, all wanting to be the first to follow, scrambled to the door, creating a jam of cursing. Constance joined the crowd and was caught by Lady Clinton. Her spondee, thankfully, said nothing about Constance's absence, only squeezed her arm and insisted that she stay by her as the spectacle was beginning. From a pasteboard throne, Juno, who might be handsome without his large blonde wig, urged a beardless youth, aping a wide-eyed virgin, to marry, while Diana, a little hairy, urged chastity. With fanfare and boys dressed as putti, the curtain was drawn back and a tableau of the high god Jupiter revealed. He raised his great thunderbolt to proclaim judgment. Marriage was the victor. It was a fine entertainment, and Constance clapped till her hands stung. The gods press for marriage, Constance, said Lady Clinton. As do I. Look who is here. How confounding. The Earl of Pembroke's second son, Herbert, the good match. Lady Clinton prepped Constance for the introduction, emphasizing the young man's particular interest in antiquities and music. To please her lady, Constance would have to make a good show of effort. Is not the princess's gathering fine? Herbert began gamely. No one relishes a laughing throng as the princess does, and yet I hear you to be a man of refinement, sir. I can enjoy dancing as well as Demosthenes. And who is your favourite of the Parthenon? Constance asked, reflecting that before coming to court she could not have carried on such a conversation. There was no talk of Olympians at Stoner, only of the lives of the saints. You seek to divine my character. I admire Hephaestus, a determined but uncelebrated god. The god of a second son. Constance felt light, airy. This banter was strangely easy to carry along. Lady Clinton must have been content. She drifted off on the arm of Captain Hawkins. I have revealed myself then, said Herbert. And you, Constance Stoner, which of the immortals has your favour? To say the goddess of the hearth was too cloying. To say Aphrodite too suggestive. Nemozine, she replied honestly. A titan, a goddess of the old ways, yet the mother of the muses, so we must admire her. I think that is an elegant choice for you, mistress. This Herbert was engaging. He was sincerely trying to make this encounter pleasant. She would do the same, Constance thought, though her smiles and nods were nothing but a sham. A rush of performers burst into the room, blowing pipes. Unusual, but what startled Constance was their strange garb. Faces covered in pitch, horns attached to the top of their heads, flapping boots adorned with goat hair, loose tunics, and some type of fur-covered hose. The crowd reared back to avoid the cavorting satyrs who leaped and brayed, and then scattered to dance with the ladies. A nymph, a twining woodland nymph. Constance recognized Oxford's voice as he threw her over his shoulder. Drunken trog, Herbert shouted. On the ground, commanded Constance. Put me on the ground. 
but Oxford was making wild, tripping skips through the hall, and Herbert running behind them only snagged her heel. Constance's stomacher felt as if it would pierce her belly, and Herbert, valiantly pulling on her, hurt her knee. And what about her damned slippers? Had she lost one? The blood rushed to her face, and her hair fell out of her snood. Why was no one stopping this? As she saw a topsy-turvy glimpse of the wildly laughing face of the Queen, she understood. Oxford spun faster and faster. There was an upside-down Brigitta bobbing in front of Herbert. There was Catherine Hastings on the arm of Bacon. Mary Howard jumping in unison with a sweaty goat. And was that Cecilia being tossed about on a turkey carpet? Jesus! These people would do anything to make the Queen laugh. Brigitta came into view again, diving at Herbert, who let go of Constance's foot to save himself from being bowled over. He was obscured as Constance's face was buried in another woman's skirt, and she lost all equilibrium. Oxford's grip loosened, and she felt herself falling backwards. Asses! yelled Oxford. She slid off his shoulder, covering her head with her arms just as she hit the stone. She had saved her head, and she was happy for it, as she thought she might need it in the future. Two hands reached out to right her, and she found herself face to face with another satyr, Rutland. Mistress Constance, my winged messenger, he scooped her up. He was more out of kilter than she, and used her to steady himself. He stank of intoxication and sweat. He was beset by the revel. Mistress St. John is nowhere. Tell me which is her chamber. Sir, you will make a shocking impression should you go to her now. Sounds, if Rutland found Thomas and all would be undone. How could it be that the forged letter had not ended his obsession? Show me to her chamber. No, sir, it would not be seemly. Show me to her chamber. The light of a taper caught his eyes. She saw they were red, staring out of his painted face. Pooh, she had traded one drunken satyr for another. Every person here was possessed. She wrote to tell me I am too high for her. It is true, and yet my piteous heart is gushing blood. I must find her, take her in my arms, and comfort her as only I can comfort. Where? Is. She. He started up the stairs. In desperation, Constance tried a new tone to show him reason through his drunkenness. Sir, the lady is wise. Someone of your own rank would be more fitting. He slumped down and said in the voice of one mortally wounded, This from you. Then jumping to his feet, he shouted, I will find her. Reason had no chance. How could Constance deflect him? There, in the next room. The Margrave of Baden-Baden and his cronies up to their favourite game. Perfect. Look, sir. She turned his head with her hands. See, shooting rabbits in the hall with bows and arrows. Does that not look a jolly pastime? I do not care. I have heard, sir, that Oxford is a better shot than you. Oxford? Better than I? Bollocks! He roared, charging off. This distraction would serve for tonight, but it was not the end of the matter. Constance noticed a discarded platter, and shaking the remains of custard onto the floor, took it up. It was just the size to use as a shield if one of these molly-coddled drunks missed the rabbit and shot at her instead. In this chapter, Constance is just trying to do the right thing by the Countess of Lennox, and then by the Earl of Rutland, but they are both being so difficult. Constance brings the host to the Countess of Lennox, and she also brings this book which turns out to be full of handwritten poetry. So we envisioned this book to be what has come to be known as the Devonshire Manuscript, which I believe now is in the British Museum. <laughs> we talked about this collection of handwritten poems and how it was compiled 
in episode 17 of the podcast. But to refresh, it was a book passed around by the Countess of Lennox and her friends in the 1530s, and they wrote their favorite poems in it. And some people, the Countess of Lennox, for instance, also wrote original poetry in it. Right, so we have Constance bring this book to the tower because the Countess has requested it. She wants some reading material to, you know, cheer her up and take her mind off her imprisonment. But it does not seem to have improved her mood. She's just too consumed with her anger over Mary of Scots not crowning her son king. Right, which may not make sense until you understand exactly what that means. He was titled king. He was king consort, which meant that he wasn't Mary's equal. He was only king in relation to his, his marriage with Mary. So in other words, if something happened to Mary, he would no longer be king. And what he wanted was to be crowned king in his own right. We talked about this issue of being a consort in episode 14. Right, because actually all of Henry's wives were queen consort, even though they were called queen. And it really did consume the Countess of Lennox that her son did not have equal status with Mary, even though Mary had the hereditary claim to the Scottish throne, and Darnley did not. She was furious about what she saw as a massive snub to Darnley, but it also had political implications because Darnley could not pass any laws without Mary's okay for the Countess of Lennox, and that's what she wanted. She wanted him to have independent power from his, from Mary. And in this chapter of Time's Riddle, she's also furious about the relationship between Queen Mary of Scots and her personal secretary, Signor David Rizzo. The Countess calls David Rizzo the black-hearted fiddler, which is a bit of a compliment while it's an insult. Well, and there was real trouble brewing in Scotland at this time because of this Italian, Signor David Rizzo, and he became indispensable to Mary, and Darnley was increasingly jealous of what he felt was Rizzo's power over his wife. And Darnley blamed Rizzo for encouraging Mary not to crown him king, whether or not Rizzo actually did that. So how did this Italian fiddler end up in Scotland? Well, Rizzo originally came to Scotland in the employ of the ambassador from the Piedmont region of Italy. Because remember, Italy isn't a country at this point. It's, it's a group of regions. And David Rizzo caught Mary's attention with his ability as a singer because Mary was very, very fond of music. But he also spoke French very well. And you know, as we know, Mary was brought up in France. Her first husband was French. She had a big connection to France, more of a connection actually than she had to Scotland. And I think she felt an affinity with Rizzo. And she named him her personal secretary for all French matters. If you're a woman like Mary, who's known for being very physically expressed, and you have a male advisor that you're very close to, you can imagine that rumor of an affair is not far behind. And the Countess of Lennox, even in the tower, had heard these rumors. And she completely takes out her fury on Constance. Yes, and I think at this time, even if you're not a woman who's physically <laughs> expressed like Elizabeth, <laughs> right? Or, I mean, you know, Elizabeth was constantly being the source of rumors that she was having an affair with someone. So, you know, being a powerful woman and having men around you, it's, it seems almost impossible that you wouldn't be accused of having a, an affair with somebody. But poor Constance, you know, is the brunt of Lady Lennox's rage, and she arrives back at, for this big bash at Bedford House, 
exhausted and disheveled, and but she has to play her part. But fortunately for her, everyone is just too distracted by the fabulousness of this feast that Cecilia has put together to pay much attention to Constance. Cecilia is pulling out all the stops to impress Queen Elizabeth because historically at this time, their relationship was souring a bit. Yeah, Elizabeth was kind of getting a little tired of her very expensive Swedish guest. So Cecilia wants everyone to have a good time, but everything would still have to be arranged according to status and propriety, and particularly status. There is a misconception out there that in the 16th century, table manners were non-existent, that Henry VIII tore a leg off a turkey with his teeth and wiped his hands on his shirt and never washed his hands and stuck the bone in his ear, <laughs> but no, 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 no. I wondered, where did that come from? I, I don't know. I feel like I remember it came from some movie in the 1930s when oh, Henry was pictured eating that way, but I don't know. Maybe that's just a fantasy of mine, but whatever. The truth of it is the Tudor royals were fastidious, and cleanliness and good table manners were very important, and so was etiquette. Etiquette often reinforces social status, and in this case, it certainly did. Cecilia is entertaining the queen, and she and her royal guest would be seated at a table raised on a dais, and only the highest-ranking nobles would share their table, and then these nobles would be arranged according to their rank, with the highest-ranking nearest the queen. And the other tables would be lower than the top table, obviously. They would be on the floor, and they would be arranged at right angles because for some reason right angles were considered better than going, coming from the left. Hmm. I don't know. But at each of these tables, there would also be a head seat, not a chair, but a head seat, and then everyone seated in a descending order of importance. And the further the table was from the royal dais, the lower in status the diners. But just to be clear, if you were there at all, it meant you were very high up. Yes. If you were sitting down eating in a room that the queen was also in, you were of a very, very tiny, tiny part of the Tudor <laughs> population. <laughs> tiny, tiny. So the courtiers would sit on benches, and the tables would be trestle tables that were stored away when not in use. In general, there was very little furniture, even in the best houses. And the queen would be the only one with a chair. I don't know. Do you think Cecilia would also have a chair? I mean, maybe one lower than the queen's, but still a chair? Maybe. I don't know. That's a good question. Because Celia wants to give the queen her rights, but as a princess, she would want to show her own status. Yeah, well, we'd need to check in with Cecilia Stewart, who would have been in charge of seating. Because there were detailed books of etiquette that were required reading for the, whatever gentleman would take on this incredibly important job of royal steward. And for the company, in his De Civitate, Erasmus wrote, sit not until you have washed. Don't <laughs> shift your buttocks left and right as if to let off some blast. Sit neatly and still. That's funny with the blast. He had a good sense of humor, that Erasmus. Oh, well, then is now. Everyone loves a fart reference. <laughs> Besides <laughs> reading Erasmus, everyone at court would have read the Renaissance Emily Post, Giovanni della Casa. Aptly he, named. <laughs> of, the, of the house. Yes. Yeah. Um, and his book was Rules of Polite Behavior. And it was translated from Italian 
to become a 16th century bestseller. He writes, quote, Also inappropriate is the habit of putting one's nose over the glass of wine someone else is drinking, or on top of the food others must eat, so as to smell it. Besides, I would not want someone sniff even what he himself has to drink or to eat. The reason is that from his nose could fall those things that men find disgusting. Let me say women also find them disgusting. I added that. (laughs) Farts and boogers. Don't you love the 16th century? But it was practical advice. In the Tudor court, eating was communal. Everything would be served in a mess. And it would be shared among the people at the table. Mess is what we might call family style now. And your status dictated how many people would share your mess. The queen didn't have to share. She had a plate to herself. The next two most important people shared between themselves, and then the next in rank with a group of four. Whoever was the top rank of each group served themselves first. My gosh, I mean, you really had to know your rank and to know everyone else's so as not to make mistakes. It sounds so stressful. It does. Can you imagine being the servant who feeds the wrong person? Well, I mean, I guess everybody's in descending order sitting, so it makes it a little clearer, but still. I do think it's very stressful. And also, don't you think people got tired of sitting next to the same people for their entire lives? (laughs) You always had to sit next to the Earl of whatever, who you thought was a bore. Yeah, all this precedent stuff must get old after a while. But people were so attached to their rank. Maybe they were willing to put up with boring dinner conversation as long as they got their rightful place at the table. And their rightful dishware. (laughs) Yes, I must have my rightful dishware. (laughs) My dishware. Damn you. (laughs) Tables would be set with trenchers, and that too was a sign of status. Gold for the queen, and then silver, and then pewter. Yeah, but if you were super poor, you'd have wood. Or maybe you wouldn't have a trencher at all. I don't know. But... Well, in, in, in England, they didn't use forks much, but everyone had their own spoon and knife, which they would bring with them to dine. Having your own spoon is where the tradition of giving a spoon for a christening came from. Do you think that's where the saying born with a silver spoon in her or his mouth comes from? Maybe. Maybe, although I think that expression was first used much later. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is all about status. And rich women would carry their personal spoons in cutlery bags. And I bet those were a status symbol, too. Although, it's actually very practical. Yes. Would you like to get into that habit of bringing your own? Doesn't it? It seems like we would waste less plastic if we had our own cutlery bags. And also, people wouldn't be stressed out, you know? Yeah. You're like, oh, you're coming over to dinner, and everyone's bringing all their own silverware. You won't be like, oh, I I don't have enough forks. I think we should (laughs) reestablish this habit. I think it might save on waste, too. And we could make very nice cutlery bags. And they had designer cutlery bags, of course, I'm sure. That was also who had the nicest cutlery bag. And you would use your spoon to serve yourself from the mess plate. Then you would clean the spoon with a piece of bread, and you would use the bread to eat with. So you would not get saliva on your spoon. So your spoon was just a serving spoon. It wasn't a spoon that you would put in your mouth. And you would eat with bread. And I would just adore that being a carboholic I would be like it's not bread it's my spoon it's my edible spoon (laughs) I have to eat it (laughs) actually there's many cultures that use bread as an eating as a yeah as a way to eat the food and 
Even bread was a status thing, of course. Poor people ate Carter's bread made from rye and wheat, and the rich ate bread made from wheat, from white wheat flour called manchette. So it's kind of the opposite to now, because I think of when I hear wheat and rye Carter's bread, it sounds like something you could buy in an artesian bakery in San Francisco. <laughs> it doesn't sound, it sounds, you know, super high up. Super artesian. But the manchette must have made a yummy, yummy spoon. Mm-hmm. And for meat, you would use your knife to cut off the piece you wanted to eat. And then the polite thing was to carefully lift the piece of meat between your thumb and forefinger so as not to touch anything. So they didn't necessarily understand the scientific connection between germs and illness, but they really still strove to be sanitary. I mean, no double dipping with a saliva-covered spoon. And actually, a lot of hand washing. There would be servants coming around with water throughout the meal, and everyone would have their own linen napkin, which they would drape over their left shoulder. So when you used your fingers to pick up your turkey leg, you could wipe your fingers, and that's very handy. And I bet they used that napkin a lot, because the upper classes did eat a lot of meat. But it was a big variety of meat. Not just turkey, mutton, venison, and beef, but also beaver, capon, peacock, robin, and even buzzard. Wow. I mean, buzzard sounds like it would be very tough and chewy. But maybe I've just seen too many buzzards in <laughs> cartoons because I can't say I've ever really no, watched th- buzzards in the wild. <laughs> I think they're actually huge buzzards. Yeah. I think they're a very big bird. I know. I mean, to us it sounds very unappetizing because of the... Image of the buzzard? Image of the buzzard, yeah. But again, I mean, all this wild game would be a status symbol because the monarch would own every inch of royal parklands and the forests and every creature in it. And these animals were all hunted by the royals or their gamekeepers. And if anyone else dared hunt there, they would be condemned as a poacher. It wasn't like, you know, this cliche now about sort of eating squirrel because you can't eat anything else. It was a totally different way of looking at these animals. And that gives the wild buzzard a whole different status. Good for the wild buzzard. (laughs) (laughs) And the vegetables served with all this meat would be things that could grow in England because it would have been impossible to import and freeze anything. They ate peas, cabbage, cauliflower, leeks, onions, and also carrots. Although apparently they were not the orange carrots that we eat today. Tudor carrots were more like parsnips. The sweeter modern carrots were actually developed by the Dutch at the end of the 1500s. While they were breeding, while they were making tulips, they made some carrots too. <laughs> yeah, but and being able to spice up your bitter purple root veg, your parsnip was also determined by class because spices were extremely expensive, as was salt. And spices were primarily used for medicine. So having any leftover to cook with was an incredible luxury. Pepper, cloves, cinnamon, ginger, and saffron were some of the most used spices, both in medicine and in cooking. Then as now, they had recipes that they imagined were inspired by other cultures, like the one I'm going to tell you about from a book called The Good Housewives Handmade. And it was called Farts of Portingale. (laughs) Farts. Come on. <laughs> I know. I should say fartigue <laughs> yeah. means light and delicate. Oh, dear. This is the recipe. How to make farts of Portingale. Was Portingale supposed to be Portugal? I don't know. I think so, yeah. Maybe it was how they said Portugal. Maybe. So take a piece 
of a leg of mutton, mince it small, and season it with cloves, mace, pepper, and salt, dates, minced with currants, and then roll it around into rolls so that it's in little balls. And then you boil them in a little beef broth and serve them forth. That sounds pretty tasty, actually. Now, not typical British fare, you know, which the cliche is we tend to think of it as so bland. No, dates and maces and cloves sounds more Mediterranean to me. Or, as you said, perhaps Portugal. Yeah, maybe this was their Spanish idea of what like people a, yeah. ate in Portugal. But I think it would be fun to make farts of Portingale, partly just to have an excuse to keep saying farts of Portingale. But these recipes are hard to replicate for an average cook like me. Yes, me too. I mean, wonderful medieval and Tudor recipes books survive, but they never give the amounts of ingredients. Right. So it's hard to know exactly how spiced or sweet the dishes would have been. And, you you know. No, it would have been much more up to the individual cook. The first measuring cup and measuring spoons were not made until the 1890s. That just blows my mind. I know. And they were actually this idea of scientific cooking, where you use these set measurements, was introduced by the Boston-based Fanny Farmer. I mean, I'm not saying she came up with it, but as far as I know, she was the first person who really put it in a cookbook. Put it in a cookbook. Tudor recipes did suggest alternatives to some ingredients, though, like good recipes do now. So there's one um, I read for almond fritters, and it says, Mm. if by chance you do not have any pork fat, use good oil. And similarly, if you do not want to use sugar, use some good honey. I wonder what they would have considered good oil. I don't know. Do you think... Well, pork fat use good oil. I don't. I don't know. I don't, are they, they importing? Have olive oil? I don't know if they're importing olive oil, especially into England. Right they don't now. have corn oil. They don't have corn oil, but maybe. What other kind of oils are there? Sesame seed oil. <laughs> I don't think they have sesame so. seed oil. No. I don't know what the good oil is. Anyway, and you might use honey. And you might just want to use honey because sugar was really, really expensive. Right. It was the luxury of luxuries, and people were crazy for it. Of course, honey could be made in your beehives, but sugar, all sugar, had to be imported. And this is opposite to our thinking. Sugar was used in medieval and Tudor times in medicine as well as sweets. So sugar was thought to have warming qualities, and it was thought that it aided digestion. And that's why fats ended with sweets. It was considered the proper way to close the stomach after the meal. Close the stomach like with a refrigerant. <laughs> I don't think young people that you like to refer to will get that reference. Well, if young people don't watch Monty Python, they should. They can look it up on the YouTube's the refrigerant mint. <laughs> Agreed. The tutors always found room for one more sweet. I mean, (laughs) Henry VIII could have played that part. (laughs) Yes. But they ate sugared almonds, preserved fruit, syllabubs made of fruit, cream, and wine. It actually sounds so yummy. Yum, 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 yum. (laughs) And they loved to make figures out of marzipan, which is made of almond paste and sugar and rose water. Marchpane was a thin layer of cake with a thick disc of marzipan on top. And the marzipan would be elaborately decorated with something symbolic, like maybe a coat of arms, a Tudor rose, you know, something to commemorate the the event. Kind of like having a happy retirement 
or a Harry Potter Quidditch pitch on a cake now. Exactly. I mean, we still love themed cakes. It just doesn't take so long to make one as it did in the 16th century. I just think of the expertise that must have been required at the time with no ovens, no refrigeration, no set measurements, especially for baking and and making sweets, which is tough. You know, it's hard work to get it to come out right. Well, I think there were kind of ovens. But that you didn't exactly know the temperature. No, no, no. no. You just had to You Not an oven like we think of it. And in the 16th century, confectionery was an art that poor people could just not indulge in. It was just too expensive between how much wood it would take to keep the fire going, how long, the ingredients, everything. But in an upper-class household, the woman of the house would make the confections because sugar was considered too costly to trust the servants Mm -hmm. with. Yeah. Well, at court, the queen would not be making the sweets, but it was specialized work. Yeah, sometimes the maids of honor themselves would have the lessons in making sweets, and it was considered an important skill for a noblewoman. But maids of honor couldn't make sweets for the whole court, I mean, for thousands of people. That was a massive job, which needed a dedicated professional staff. So having a confectioner became a necessity of the royal household, and often these confectioners were women, when almost all the royal kitchen staff were men. Lucy Cornwallis was the royal confectioner of Henry VIII, and she was the only woman in a kitchen staff of 200. That's amazing. Yes. And she had a lot of work to do because Henry loved confectionery showstoppers. <laughs> yeah. He held a sugar banquet at Greenwich with a sugar sculpture of a manor, a dungeon, swans, a chessboard, and chessmen. And you couldn't eat those sugar sculptures. They were made with a mixture of sugar and resin and often brushed with gold paint. They weren't even dessert. (laughs) You had to use other sugar for that. Using all this super expensive sugar was a way to show status. Although food has always had a status symbol aspect to it, and still does. Right. But the Elizabethans certainly ate a lot of sugar, too. And they used it liberally on meat and vegetables, as well as in confectionery. So actually, Sir Thomas Wyatt has a line in one of his poems about luxuriousness of Henry VIII's court. He writes of, quote, sugared meats. Before I knew that the Elizabethans sugared their meat, I took that to be some kind of metaphor. (laughs) But of course it's not. Sugared meats just refer to... Meat sprinkled with sugar. (laughs) And I don't know, I saw it as some allusion to sugared meats. I don't know, but I'm definitely guilty of overcomplicating arcane phrases when I don't understand the references. I mean, me too. I think that's a common error that you're like, oh, this is... Must be a reference to love or something, (laughs) sugared meats. But sugared meats were served at the Tudor court to show wealth. And Elizabeth famously destroyed her teeth with too much sugar, Apparently they went black and she had to have rotten teeth pulled. I read that people imitated her and blackened their teeth to match hers. Do you think they actually did that? I don't know. It's hard to imagine that they did. And, you know, Elizabeth lived to a very ripe old age of 70 when the average life expectancy was something like 35. So maybe her teeth went black because she was old and and she didn't have good dentistry i don't know if it was all just based on her sugar on her sugar consumption and you know sometimes these kind of stories are they're kind of they're rooted in one person's account that just kind of took off like you know maybe an ambassador or a tourist writing back to their friends in another country and you know we all love to exaggerate about the oddities of other societies so it's kind of hard to figure out the origin and the 
the reality of a lot of these things. It's true. In historical research, you always have to consider your source. And just because it's contemporary does not mean it's accurate. But it does seem that the damage to rich people's teeth was compounded by the fact that not only did they eat a ton of sugar, but they also rubbed it on their teeth as a kind of toothpaste. Yeah, so they had sweet breath, but rotten teeth. It gives me nightmares. <laughs> oh my God. It makes your teeth uh, hurt. Uh, and it, then it didn't really help when your teeth fell out because, oh, well, never mind. It's too much in, pain. In We're dental. We're dental, <laughs> dental babies. Yes. In 1565, when our story takes place, Elizabeth still has all of her teeth. We hope. We hope. <laughs> and is having a fine time at Cecilia's bash. We hope. Well, Constance is left to distract the Earl of Rutland from making a fool of himself because he's had too much to drink and he wants to go find Thomas and St. John. And, of course, Constance doesn't want him to find her, so it's going to be a long night for Constance. So join us next time when we find out how things are going with Blackjack and Philomena and we hear gossip about Cecilia's husband, the Margrave. But leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. Please let us know if you have any questions about anything we talked about today. We'd love to answer them. We really appreciate your support. All our gratitude for listening. And join us next time for more Tudor-minded talk.